Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. The Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern on MSNBC. Welcome back to the supersized Friday summer edition of All In. I'm Chris Hayes. Uh, Last night's January 6th committee hearing introduced two more loyal Trump officials, Republicans who were in the White House on January 6th, until Donald Trump's actions that day kind of, well, broke them. To me, his refusal to act and call off the mob that day and his refusal to condemn the violence was indefensible. And so I knew that I would be resigning that evening. Mr. Pottinger, when you made the decision to resign, did, did you walk out of the White House immediately? <clears throat> no, I wanted to first talk to my immediate boss, that was the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien. So I ended up staying uh, at my desk uh, through the night. Uh, When Robert O'Brien arrived back at the White House uh, the next morning, the morning of the 7th, uh, I debriefed uh, with him uh, and left for the last time. Throughout the hearings, the committee has consistently shown Trump's negative impact on his most loyal followers, how they... uh, you know, believed in him, believed they were doing something good for the country by working for him, and then, well, they were disappointed. It was something that Vice Chair Liz Cheney was explicit about last night. By our count, at least 15 of the 20 in-person witnesses at the hearings this summer have been Republicans, conservatives, whether Republican officials or former Republican judges, legendary conservative judges like Michael Ludig. This is all intentional because, among other things, These hearings are a genuine attempt at persuasion, right, at reaching conservatives and Republicans and anyone who needs convincing that Donald Trump is a threat and a menace and an existential danger to American democracy. And that can be true even if you're a Republican, even if you, you know, want to see capital gains taxes cut or you're opposed to abortion. And so it makes sense to use the voices of the people closest to the ex-president to show that. But I got to say, it also creates a really weird vibe. Because it really feels like all these people, they're sitting before the microphone, you know, dutiful and earnest as they are, should know better than to be continually surprised and flabbergasted and disappointed and disbelief about just how destructive and blatant a liar Donald Trump is. Listen to how a few of them reacted after Donald Trump tweeted that Mike Pence was a coward as an armed mob was storming the Capitol where Pence was hiding inside. I think that in that moment, for him to tweet out the message about Mike Pence, it was him pouring gasoline on the fire and making it much worse. I don't remember when exactly I heard about that tweet, but my reaction to it is that's a a terrible tweet. And I disagreed with the sentiment. And I thought it was wrong. What was your reaction when you saw that tweet? Extremely unhelpful. That's one way to put it, Judd Deere. Yeah, extremely unhelpful. Painting a target on the back of the vice president of the United States as his security detail hustles him away 
from a ferocious mob out for blood chanting, hang Mike Pence. Unhelpful. Not surprising. And again, of course, I completely understand why the committee is leaning on these Trump Republicans to tell the story. But it is still very jarring to watch when all of the character flaws they are identifying were shockingly obvious from forever, honestly, for decades, but clearly from the day Donald Trump came down from that escalator and said Mexico was sending rapists. He lived his entire life in public, much of it on national TV. He ran an entire presidential campaign, you know, where he attacked veterans, women, Muslims. He wanted to ban all Muslims from the United States of America. That itself, utterly disqualifying. Just right there. That's it. Boom. The line. I would like to think we all knew who he was before he became president. This reaction from former Trump supporters, the people who are being called to testify for the committee, it, it's fascinating at some level to watch. I mean, just in a kind of like human trauma sense, because it's broadly applicable to literally millions of people. We were just talking to Sarah Longwell about this, right? I mean, the Republican Party right now is a coalition of the diehard MAGA folks, the people who would walk through fire for Trump, and the people who once supported Trump and hate liberals, right? They're just Republicans. They'll vote for the Republican nominee. Maybe they're not hardcore Trump people. They think he gets a bad rap. He's kind of annoying to them. So these hearings are creating a clear delineation between these two groups. And these revelatory moments are displaying a, a, a true study in the depths of human denial. And I got to say, I've watched the hearings thinking that a lot of it was performance of false naivete. And I think that's true, especially for people like Bill Barr and Pat Cipollone. Still think that. But there was this one moment last night that really struck me. It was a text conversation on January 9th between Trump campaign officials Tim Murtaugh and Matthew Wolking about Trump's refusal to say anything at all about Brian Sicknick. That would be the Capitol Police officer who died the day after the attack. Murtaugh said, also not to have acknowledged the death of the Capitol Police officer. Wolking responded, that's enraging to me. Everything he said about supporting law enforcement was a lie. To which Murtaugh replied, you know what this is? Of course, if he acknowledged the dead cop, he'd be implicitly faulting the mob. And he won't do that because they're his people. And he would also be close to acknowledging that what he lit at the rally got out of control. No way he acknowledges something that could ultimately be called his fault. No way. It's like you can see the light bulb coming on over the head of the Trump staffer, like mid-text. You can see the Trump illusion fading away, just like in these texts that Trump's former campaign manager, Brad Parscale, sent on January 6th, saying, quote, a sitting president asking for civil war this week, I feel guilty for helping him win. Now, those sentiments are fleeting. A lot of these people have just gone back to being Trump people, so do with that what you will. But you have to hope that other people watching the hearings are having the moment that these two guys did and seeing Donald Trump now the way they should have seen him from, well, the very beginning. Miles Taylor served as chief of staff of the Department of Homeland Security during the Trump administration before resigning in June of 2019. While part of the Trump administration, he wrote a now famous anonymous op-ed in the New York Times titled, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. He's now co-founder and executive director of the Renew America Movement, and he joins me now. Miles, as someone who worked inside the Trump administration, but I think also had a pretty clear view of the nature of the man from the jump, 
I'm curious about how you understand, say, that text exchange between Merton walking uh, that that Elaine Loria played last night. Chris, I think things like that are fake light bulb moments. These are people who knew better, right? No one under any conceivable theory needed the January 6th insurrection to see who Donald Trump was. And, and I got to tell you, Chris, in, in that time that I was there in that administration, I'm pretty sure I earned myself a PhD in cowardice analytics. I saw it everywhere from Capitol Hill to the inside of the administration where people would quietly admit Republicans and the president's own cabinet secretaries would quietly admit he was unfit for the job, unstable, and even a danger to the fabric of our republic. And the same day, they might go to the microphones and praise Donald Trump and how extraordinary his administration was. Now, that wasn't everyone, because look, in the very beginning, a lot of the cabinet members, a lot of people in the administration understood it. And that's actually why they went in. I remember John Kelly telling me before I came in, Miles, it's not as bad as it looks. It is so much worse, which is why I went and joined. And we saw why people like that went and joined the administration, like John Kelly, like Jim Mattis, because by the very end, when they were all gone, we saw what types of dangerous people Donald Trump wanted to put in charge of our government. But there's a really important piece there, Chris, and that is people left when they realized that saying no to him was no longer enough. That's important. When you no longer feel like you can push him in the right path, uh, path or, or put the bad ideas back in the box, it's time to go and time to tell the American people. But to me, there's also a deeper problem here or a deeper question, right, which is about the fate of American democracy. OK, so there's there's two ways to understand the fate of an American democracy, that there is um, a particularly malevolent individual whose malevolence fits with some of the underlying dysfunctions to create the kind of perfect storm that's January 6th and the um, continuing threat to American democracy. And the other is that there's something deeper and broader, and I think particularly in the formation of the American right right now, that is just turning against democracy in a deeper sense. And I worry that that is kind of unaddressed in all this, right? If the hearing is, well, Matthew Pottinger's an earnest, good public servant, and, you know, Sarah Math, all these people are good, earnest public servants, and it just got too much in the end when he tried to, like, get his vice president's neck into the gallows— you're missing in some ways, right? Like the bigger problem. Yeah, well, look, in, in, in the case of Matt especially, uh, that's uh, one of the last remaining adults that I'm glad was still in his job towards the very end, given the serious things that could have gone wrong in other places when it came to national security at the end of the administration. But Chris, you're right. It's one of the reasons why a whole bunch of us tried to go get people to quit the Trump administration and campaign against him in 2020, to just go say the things they were saying privately, publicly, and to tell the American people. And Trump very barely lost that election. We were very close to a second term of Donald Trump in which it would have been weapons free. And I don't say that in a figurative term. I think it would have been a very dangerous, volatile situation, the greatest threat to this democracy we have ever seen and coming from within. It was important that people quit and do that. I was deeply disappointed in certain people who didn't leave and do that. And in fact, it ended up being not the household names who came out and publicly campaigned against Donald Trump. It's people that folks had never heard of. Olivia Troy, yep. Elizabeth Newman, John Mitnick. Those those were the people that ended up doing yep. it. And, and we're going to need more people to step out of the shadows, Chris, because he's running again. He's going to run again, and it's going to be a fundamental threat to this country. It, clearly. I mean, there's new reporting today about the desire to just fire tens of thousands of civil servants, replace them with essentially loyalists, essentially turn the federal government into um, a kind of 
machine politics with nuclear weapons. Uh, that's that's the sort of vision, like a MAGA machine politics. I guess the question is, what do you think about, right? The, the rhetorical strategy here is, here are trusted messengers to the people that are capable of being persuaded. These aren't liberals. These aren't people that, that you know, disagree with you on probably most fundamental issues. These are people that have your politics who are telling you, the guy's bad news. If that doesn't get through, I guess the question is like, what do you do with that? How do you, how do you think about the fact that even the people closest to him telling Republicans the guy's a maniac is having trouble getting through? I do think it is starting to work with the people that matter in this case, Chris. You're never going to convince the mega MAGA folks to change their minds. Yeah, of but course. importantly, yeah. uh, the polling that I've reviewed shows roughly any given month, 20 or 30 percent of Republicans are sort of in the category of disaffected Republicans. They're just begging for a stream of excuses to tell their MAGA friends it's time to move beyond Donald Trump. I think it is right. working with that cohort. And the more people like Sarah and Matt and Cassidy Hutchinson that come forward, you can say it's later than they should have come forward, but I'm glad they are because it leads to more and more folks doing the same. This is going to sound ironic coming from me, Chris, but now is not the time for anonymity. It's why I ultimately unmasked myself, as I realized anonymity right. was not going to take this guy down. People needed to own it in their own names, and we need to see that happening. It's one reason, Chris, I'm calling on the select committee to continue their investigation through the midterm elections. Even if the Republicans win, they should continue until the day the Republicans take over and shut it down, yep. because it's more and more of an opportunity for people to step forward. I agree with that. Miles Taylor, thank you for making time for us tonight. Up next, the criminal investigation into those missing Secret Service texts from January 6th. As we learn more about the extent of the danger agents faced at the Capitol that day, we'll be right back. Here's a question. Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how Vivgard, FGARD Tigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgard.com slash MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot com slash MOA. Brought to you by Argenix. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations. And they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. There is now a criminal investigation into the missing Secret Service text messages sent around the time of the January 6th attack. Now, at last night's hearing, the January 6th committee made a clear case showing why we need to know what was in those texts. As rioters were entering the building, the Secret Service held Vice President Pence 
in his office right off the Senate chamber for 13 minutes as they worked to clear a safe path to a secure location. Now listen to some of that radio traffic and see what they were seeing as the protesters got just feet away from where the vice president was holding. Hold. 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 If we lose uh, any more time, we may have we may lose the ability to to leave. So if we're going to leave, we need to do it now. They've gained access to the second floor, and I've got public about five feet from me down here below. They are on the second floor, moving in now. We may want to consider getting out and leaving now. Copy. Will we encounter the people once we make our way? Repeat. Counter any individuals if we made our way to the... To the There's six officers between us and the people that are five to ten feet away from me. I am going down to evaluate. Go ahead. We have a clear sauce if we move quickly. We got smoke downstairs set by unknown smoke set downstairs by the protesters. Is, is that route compromised? We have this... Insecure. However, we will bypass some protesters that are being contained. There is smoke, unknown what kind of smoke it is. Copy. Clear, we're coming out now. All right, make a way. Committee also played testimony from a national security professional inside the White House whose identity was masked for protection and who laid out how the vice president was literally seconds away from the rioters and his Secret Service detail feared for their own lives, even calling their families to say goodbye. Okay. That last entry in the state of service, the Capitol does not sound good right now. Correct. What does that mean? The members of the BPT tell at this time were starting to fear for their own lives. Um, there were a lot of, there was a lot of yelling, um, a lot of A lot of very personal calls um, over the radio, so uh, it was disturbing. I don't like talking about it, but um, uh, there were calls to uh, say goodbye to family members, so on and so forth. It was getting, for, for whatever the reason was on the ground, the BPT tail thought that this was about to get very ugly. And do you, did you hear that over the radio? What was the response by the agents who, Secret Service agents who were there? Everybody kept saying, you know, at that point it was just reassurances or um, I think there were discussions of reinforcements coming, but again, it was just chaos. They were just yelling. Obviously you conveyed so disturbing, but what, what prompted you to put it into an entry? as it states their service to the council. They're running out of options, and they're getting nervous. It, it, it sounds like we're, that we came very close to either service having to use legal options or or worse. Like, I, I, at that point, I don't know. Is the VP compromised? Is the detail kind of, like, I, I don't know. Like, we didn't have visibility, but it doesn't. If they're screaming and, and saying things like, say goodbye to the family, like, the floor needs to know this is going to a whole other level soon. That is what agents with the vice president were going through as a mob invaded the Capitol chanting hang like pence. The Department of Homeland Security's inspector general has now launched a criminal investigation looking to why Secret Service text messages were deleted. They have also instructed the Secret Service to halt any internal search to avoid interfering interfering with the investigation. 
Today, we learned that before the DHS announcement, Secret Service investigators were looking at the phones of 10 agents that contained metadata showing text messages sent and received around the time of the attack. Those messages may have been deleted. Joining me now is Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor, and Kyle Cheney, senior legal affairs reporter for Politico. Um, Kyle, let me start with you on this. I mean, th- this seems very, very serious. And it honestly just, I, I think you probably would agree as a reporter, it just stinks to high heaven. It's just one of those things where you're like, I'm not getting the story here. And it really does seem like after we saw that testimony and evidence last night, that the text from that day from the details of the vice president and the president are actually some of the most important possible evidence we can get. What do you think, Kyle? Absolutely. And, and the way this story has changed just in a matter of days from, you know, there was a, an agency-wide uh, upgrade of phones that may have compromised some unknown subset of text messages over a wide range of time. So now we're drilling down to, as you pointed out, the key moments during the attack and 10 specific agents. I mean, they're, they're drilling down. They, they know what they're missing. And apparently those messages are relevant to what the select committee is investigating. And so the fact that those are among the, the messages that are gone is just raises all kinds of red flags. I think the select committee, every time they learn something new about this, the, the alarms go off. They're not learning things and saying, oh, well, maybe there's an explanation. They're saying, no, this is this is crazy. And they subpoenaed the agency and its outgoing director, uh, James Murray. Uh, and and there's some reporting, I think, that even some of his messages may be missing. So it's it, there's a lot to figure out here. And I think it's one reason the select committee is not ready to close up shop after these hearings. They want to keep pursuing this. Yeah. And Paul, um, as someone who worked at the Department of Justice uh, and and has thought about how sort of criminal law functions at the highest levels, the criminal investigation is significant. And we've now heard various agents retaining private counsel, which, of course, is their is their constitutional right. But what's the significance of that? So where are the missing texts? Chris, there's an historical argument that this is only gross negligence. But my experience as a public corruption prosecutor is when government agencies can't find records, it's usually because of incompetence rather than criminal intent. But but here is the agency's own bizarre response to the scandal. It raises questions about a cover-up and whether certain agents are trying to protect Donald Trump from being brought to justice. Here's what's hard to understand. The Secret Service is actually the government agency that investigates cybercrime. How how is its leadership so so technically illiterate that they don't know how to preserve data? And, And then when it's deleted, they don't know how to excavate it. And why did the Secret Service say it was conducting an after-action review of January 6th, uh, probably one of the most tragic days in the agency's history, and and then failed to do the report? And and finally, it's the agency's defense that's problematic. It it admits that it told agents to save data, but it says a lot of them just didn't do it. Yeah, we should note when you talk about the response, uh, an Easter egg for longtime all-in viewers is that the spokesperson for the Secret Service right now is the individual who served as the spokesperson for the Chicago Police Department when Laquan McDonald was shot by Chicago police. Uh, And there was protestations uh, that that he was armed, that he had menaced officers, turned out not to be true. There was questions about missing videotape. 
uh, as well. So there's a sort of interesting echo here just in terms of the, the personnel at issue. The other thing to me, uh, Kyle here, and I want to read you what, what uh, Congresswoman Luria said on Friday, the fact that some agents hired some of the criminal lawyers in the country, they can be represented by counsel provided by DHS, tells us a lot. We have a lot more questions about the Secret Service. It does, doesn't make any sense to me. Here's one of the, the, the really genuinely new revelations. Um, there are two details here that came very close to physically being pitted against each other. And I don't think we quite realized that until Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, which is uh, s- substantially corroborated, right, Kyle? Which is the president wanted to take his detail and his armed guards to lead the mob to the Capitol, where the other detail for Vice Prince were protecting Mike Pence, producing a situation of like a question of which, who's protecting who and who's doing what, that has to be sorted out at a factual basis about what happened there. What do you think? There's actually even a third. You had the vice president-elect who was at the DNC where the pipe bombs were discovered. uh, And there's some questions about what her detail was up to how she was even allowed to go into that building when the pipe bombs had been outside for hours before. So it's actually a very complicated story for the Secret Service. They're answering questions about every piece of that. And, and as you point out, how they interconnect to, um, you know, how you know, we know that Pence had some reluctance about getting in his motorcade to leave the Capitol, uh, you know, that day. And you know, some of the messages surrounding that decision might be very relevant and we don't know if they've been recovered. Um, and, and so that's why there's so many questions about each piece of that and how they fit together that we still don't know the answer to. All right. Paul Butler and Kyle Cheney, thank you very much for joining us on this special edition. Really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Uh, Coming up, the complicity of the junior senator from Missouri on January 6th and the new footage of him on that day released by the committee last night. Al Franken is here on that next. The International Rescue Committee is a critical organization working in more than 50 countries, responding to the world's worst humanitarian crises. The IRC serves people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. Responding within 72 hours after an emergency strikes, they stay as long as needed. Right now, in places like Afghanistan and Ukraine, families are experiencing adverse winter weather like heavy rain, frigid temperatures, and snowfall on top of war, hunger, and displacement. Many makeshift camps are unable to withstand extreme weather conditions. Some people are living without reliable electricity, while others can't afford to buy fuel for the heat source they do have. Donations help the IRC provide families with the resources they need to recover and rebuild their lives, including essential winter items like emergency food, shelter, fuel, medicine, blankets, winter gear, and cash assistance. For example, even just a $14 donation can provide a temporary shelter for a displaced family. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. I'm going to pin you down on, on what you're trying to do. You know, are you trying to say that as of January 20th, that President Trump will be president? Well, Brad, that, that depends on what happens on Wednesday. I mean, this is why we have the debate. No, it this doesn't. Is- That was Republican Senator Josh Hawley, Missouri, just two days before he voted to object to the certification of the 2020 election results on January 6th. He cast that vote just hours after a violent mob stormed the Capitol, bashing in the brains of cops, leading to multiple deaths. 
He was not some fringe character in the scheme, not some sideline player. No, Josh Hawley was not just a part of the congressional plan to overturn the government. He was not just raising his fist in the air as he passed the Trump mob. He was integral to it. He helped lead the charge. Senator Hawley was the first Republican senator to announce that he would object to the certification of election results, which is to say, use his position in the Senate to overturn the will of the American people and overturn the election to keep Donald Trump in power. He never stopped defending that vote. Well, yesterday, the committee took the time to highlight the moment when Senator Hawley raised his fist in the air and then what happened afterwards. Senator Josh Hawley also had to flee. Earlier that afternoon, before the joint session started, he walked across the east front of the Capitol. As you can see in this photo, he raised his fist in solidarity with the protesters already amassing at the security gates. We spoke with a Capitol Police officer who was out there at the time. She told us that Senator, Senator Hawley's gesture riled up the crowd, and it bothered her greatly because he was doing it in a safe space, protected by the officers and the barriers. Later that day, Senator Hawley fled after those protesters he helped to rile up stormed the Capitol. See for yourself. Joining me now is Al Franken. He represented Minnesota in the Senate for nearly a decade. He now hosts the Al Franken Podcast, founder of the Midwest Values Political Action Committee. Uh, Al, it's great to have you on. Um, that Thank was really friend. quite a moment last night. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like it uh, in any kind of hearing uh, in terms of a committee going out of its way to yeah. essentially just drag an individual member of Congress for his cowardice and recklessness. What'd you think? Well, he deserved it. As you pointed out, he was the first uh, senator. I can't believe he beat Cruz to the punch on that one. Right. Uh, but I, this was, I think, the first laugh in, in the seven hearings. Uh, I didn't have the pleasure of serving with Josh Hawley, but uh, I haven't really liked what I've seen. And uh, I called on him and Cruz and those who called, especially those two, to be investigated, uh, to have an ethics investigation into them, because I don't know how much they coordinated uh, with the folks that uh, planned this. Yeah, it's a really good point, because I think part of what, aside from the sort of, I agree, the first laugh, and it, it I don't know if you saw the video, but it worked in the room, uh, as they said. Yes. It got it got, <laughs> yeah. it got, it got, it got, it got a That's laugh they in say. the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and, uh, they, the, the degree to which last night was a reminder of how embedded and implicated Cruz and Hawley and then Tuberville and a few others were in this entire effort, I thought was useful because there was so much attention on them in the days after that, again, like everything has waned a little bit about the complicity of Republican senators, a very small portion of whom, but a significant, voted with the mob even after the mob ransacked the Capitol. I think three of those who had signed on didn't, uh, but the rest had. I think seven did vote with yep. to not certify senators. Yeah. Uh, pretty disgraceful. 
Uh, can I point out something that I, I uh, thought about today, which was yep. um, member during the uh, impeachment, the uh, Trump defense team did this thing about uh, they ran a montage of Democrats saying fight. You should fight. And, you know, this is like Elizabeth Warren, Warren fighting for student loans, forgiveness. They didn't know the people in the crowd had AR-15s. And I think this kind of goes toward why this guy should be prosecuted. When he said fight, he knew they were armed. And that to me, um, that's that's got to be actionable. This guy has to be prosecuted. I think that's such a great point. And part of why that revelation of that moment where Cassie Hutchinson says, you know, he says, let my people in, basically. Um, they're not like they're not here to hurt me. Well, yeah. OK, fight. That means go hurt them. And boy, what, they, they did. What do you think about this committee as as an undertaking, because it, it, it is so distinct to me. Um, I, I've never seen anything like it. It, it. it partly exists in this parallel universe because it doesn't have the normal partisan contentiousness because there's a unity of purpose across the partisan divide. Um, and that allows them to kind of be quite different and innovative almost in, in how they're, what they're trying to do with the hearing. And as someone who's chaired hearings and participated in hearings, I'm just curious what, what you think of what they're doing. I think it, they've been brilliant. This has exceeded all my uh, expectations. But then again, nothing has shocked me. And I, so every every uh, hearing, there's uh, revelations that are are uh, pretty amazing. And just the fact like uh, Cipollini basically saying, uh, yeah, so and so was uh, for. <laughs> you know, uh, was against uh, the, the president on that and so and so and so and so. Anybody else uh, for him? Uh, <laughs> look to counsel. Can I say? What can I say? I mean, it, it's they're they're pretty entertaining and but also devastating. But again, nothing shocks me. Nothing that Donald Trump has done. Yeah. Although it is it is there's something also I agree they're entertaining. There's also something satisfying about lear learning new things and and seeing new parts of that and including uh, absolutely the, you're fascinating. The, the, the trotting yeah. of, of one Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. Uh, Al Franken, thank you so much for making a little time for us. Tonight. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you, Chris. Still ahead, George Conway on what we learned from the January 6th committee and what lies ahead for Steve Bannon. But first, why there might be some good news for Democrats in the midterms. That's next. For a while now, the historically informed expectation has been that the party of the president, especially the unified government, takes a real beating in the first midterm election. It's just sort of how it's played out. In 1982, true for Ronald Reagan, Republicans lost 26 seats in the House. 1994, true for Bill Clinton, Democrats lost 52 seats. 2010, when Barack Obama was in office, Democrats suffered through the fateful Tea Party way of losing 63 House seats. In 2018, Donald Trump saw a blue wave in the House, Republicans losing 40 seats. And there's also the fact that, look, the country is still trying to work its way through the aftermath of this once-in-a-century pandemic, which is 
still going at some level, but has also created this economic disruption that's led to 9% inflation, the highest in 40 years. And let's just be honest, a generally dyspeptic national mood. That's reflected in President Joe Biden's approval rating, which is just under 38%, which is not good. It's a bad sign for his party. And yet, and yet, something really interesting is happening. So in the past month, uh, polling asking respondents if they prefer the Democrat or Republicans to control the House, it's called the generic ballot, is moving in an encouraging direction for the Democratic Party. In June, Politico and Morning Consult asked why who voters would choose if the election were held today. They found the parties were tied. Now 45% say they would prefer to vote for Democrats, being they're leading in the generic ballot. Even the Emerson College poll, Republicans held the lead in June, 46 to 43 favoring Republicans, are now seeing that lead decrease to 45 to 44. When Quinnipiac asked who voters prefer control of the House, their latest poll found 45% of Americans prefer Democratic control, up from June, when 46% of people said they prefer Republican control. Part of this, I think, is likely due to the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, which is understandably fired many people up who care about abortion rights, who believe in abortion rights. There's also the fact that lots of people view the Republican Party right now as an existential threat to American democracy, a fact that has been well illustrated in the January 6th committee hearings. It's also not helped the Republican Party has nominated a number of truly awful candidates this year. And it's because of all that, the Cook Political Report, which is one of the premier political forecasting entities, just moved their House projections from the midterms from, quote, a Republican game of between 20 and 35 seats to between 15 and 30 seats. They are projecting Republicans will gain fewer seats. They are ratcheting back the expectations of the magnitude of the Republican win. Now, look, all this trying to model the future, which is unwritten. Lord knows what could happen. I mean, Russia invaded Ukraine in February and spent the whole world on a different course. It's anyone's guess what could happen between now and Election Day. One lesson we've learned in this new political moment is to take nothing for granted and not to simply assume doom with all that could occur between now and November. Looks like Steve Bannon might be going to jail. Seven, the 68-year-old former Trump advisor faces up to two years behind bars because of his refusal to participate in the January 6th investigation. And Steve Bannon is an extreme example of the noncompliance that January 6th Committee Vice Chair Liz Cheney called out last night. We've seen bravery and honor in these hearings, and Ms. Matthews and Mr. Pottinger, both of you will be remembered for that, as will Cassidy Hutchinson. She sat here alone, took the oath, and testified before millions of Americans. She knew all along that she would be attacked by President Trump and by the 50, 60, and 70-year-old men who hide themselves behind executive privilege. But like our witnesses today, she has courage, and she did it anyway. So what's next for all the others hiding from the investigation, especially given today's news regarding Steve Bannon? George Conway is a prominent conservative lawyer, and he joins me now. Um, George, you said earlier today that Bannon looks like he's going out of his way to get the max time here. Uh, and for all the, the bravado going into this, I mean, they didn't. They, there's no defense because he's basically just saying, like, the law doesn't apply to me. And generally, I feel like judges don't love that. And judges definitely don't love that. They don't love 
defendants who are basically giving the finger to the court and to the legal system once they're found guilty, or even before they're found guilty. And here he's he was smirking, apparently, according to some reports, and smiling in the courtroom when the jury came back with the verdict. And I don't know what he did tonight on, on that other network, but I doubt he was giving, you know, he was supposed to go on, and I doubt he was giving some kind of apology or expressing some kind of remorse for his failure to comply with the law. And he basically has been asserting that he's above the law. And then it came out that he had no defense. He simply defied the subpoena. He had no basis. The executive privilege was complete garbage because he, he hadn't been in the White House since 2017. And whatever he was talking about with Donald Trump certainly didn't have anything to do with the proper execution of Donald Trump's duties in office. So, you know, he um, and he didn't put on a defense. And the jury, amazingly, the jury um, the jury took time for lunch and then convicted him in two and a half hours. So uh, pretty, pretty simple case. And I, I, I don't see the real question is, you know, how stiff a sentence is he going to get? I mean, he's got he, he is a 30 day minimum on, on each count uh, with a one year maximum. The judge, you know, most sentences would be run concurrently. So he'd probably get a max of a year, 30 days to a year. But judge could give him anywhere from 30 days to two years if he, you know, if he if he shows enough disrespect for the legal system. We'll have to see what the what the um, Justice Department asked for and what the pre-sentence report um, from the probation office says. Yeah, and, and the, the lawyer for the January 6th, uh, for the Department of Justice uh, today, uh, this week, said there's an urgency to the select committee's work. The select committee is looking at a violent assault at the U.S. Capitol on law enforcement and our democracy. We have limited amount of time to, in which to gather information, uh, even as the threat to democratic institution continues. Um, that's the, the general counsel of January 6th. Uh, committee in terms of the the urgency of 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 getting the testimony which the amount of testimony this committee has accrued just as we've learned from the the hearings is 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 pretty astounding and I'm curious what you think yes. of the work they've presented so far uh, the work that they've done is absolutely outstanding and and I I suspect that they could probably do another season's worth of these on on the basis of of the evidence that they already have in the bank, and apparently, if uh, as if, if, if it's true, as as Liz Cheney said, that the uh, the dams have opened up, and that's not surprising at all. There's no reason for sure to make that up, and it certainly makes sense, given the fact that you know the the jig is basically up, and people are telling the truth and telling the story. Um, you know, we we've got a lot more coming, and I think what's interesting is. They, they've been coming at this whole post-election period in different ways with different witnesses in different directions for these eight hearings that they've had. And even though we're covering some of the same ground each time, and, and those of us who have been paying attention to this since January of 2021, knew the basic outlines of the story. It's it's a gripping television and a gripping drama each time. Yeah. I mean, the, you just you know, it just you just play different people telling their own perspectives, and and then putting it in the context. Even if you're showing some clips that we've already seen, it, it's just. Astounding. I mean, none of it's surprising in the sense that we 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 know what the, how the story comes out, but it's just stunning to watch. 
I wanted to ask about Pat Cipollone and his executive privilege claims. I mean, it's interesting because you keep seeing uh, it's like a it's like a dog with one of those in- invisible those collars to the invisible fence. Like they get to the privilege part and then they stop. Like he gets to the you know he gets to the what the president said and he stops talking. I, I don't I don't know my reading amateur people I've talked to. There's not a lot there for the privilege claim he's making. What do you think of it? I- First of all, there is no privilege claim to begin with because the privilege belongs to the United States. Okay, the privilege belongs to you and I as the taxpayer. And the privilege is certainly for the attorney client privilege. I can't imagine it's any broader than the executive privilege. And the D.C. Circuit and the U.S. Supreme Court have basically said in the context of this investigation, the interests of the public in learning this information outweighs any possible executive privilege. And that's particularly in the context of the fact that this he was not exercising the duties of his office. He was derelict in his duties. But to say to to go one step further, though, if I'm the general counsel to um, a company and I am advising the CEO or the board of directors and I do it through intermediaries like the 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 chief assistant to the CEO, um, that's still privileged. Because the privilege belongs to the entire entity. And right. therefore, the privilege, if I tell, you know, if the chief of staff comes to me and I'm the White House counsel and says the president wants the answer to X legal question, give me that answer and I will pass it on to him. That's a privileged conversation. And so this was all bullshit, if you will, because it's like anything he said, anything he anything he said to to Meadows would be just as privileged That's as anything great, he would it's say great to point. Trump. Yeah, there's not some uh, constitutional force field. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's not some constitutional force field around Donald Trump as an individual, which is how it sort of seems to be. He's he's trying to sort of spin it in these in, uh, in these depositions. But I'm glad I'm glad you said that because I've been I've it's been it driving me a little crazy. George Conway, thank you for coming on with us tonight. Have a great weekend. Appreciate it. That does it for the supersized edition of All In. The Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern on MSNBC. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.